Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Reading verses 12 to 20 uh, again this week. And with an emphasis on verses uh, 16 and following. Before we hear from the Lord, let's go to Him in prayer and ask His blessing upon the reading and the preaching and the hearing of His Word. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, our Heavenly Father, we come to You again, giving You thanks and praise. Lord, we thank You for Your Word, that it is perfect, that it is complete. Lord, You have revealed Yourself to us therein. You have shown us all that we would need to know for life and godliness. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that You would help us to believe it, to base our lives upon it, and Lord God, to find comfort as we hear it. We ask all of this, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning of verse 12. Please give your full attention. This is the word of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So far the reading of God's word. We continue this morning in this passage. We began last week. Um, And at the heart of this message, uh, Paul hammers this great truth. He hammers again this great truth and therefore the great fruit that follows uh, from that. And that followers of Jesus, those united to him, should be true of them. And then we saw last week that main point. And that is that because we are bought with the blood of Christ and we are united to him, then we are to flee from sexual immorality and glorify God in our bodies. Again, because we were bought with the blood of Christ, we are to flee from sexual immorality and glorify God in our bodies. Paul makes this point in a number of ways. We began last week, we saw he makes this point, he does so by showing the wrong grounding, uh, the wrong worldview that they had, that they had imbibed and they were still living from, right, this, this, their previous worldview, what they had, this pagan worldview, the wrong grounding in verses 12 to 14. And then Paul makes this point by making a request to remember, right? He calls them to remember. They should have known 
these things. And then he does so by showing the radical results of what's going on, of this union, of this joining themselves to a prostitute. And, and indeed, the radical results of who they are by virtue of their union with Christ in verses 17 and 18. And then verses 19 and 20, he makes this point by pointing out again, by calling them to remember, by declaring to them the redemption price, the redemption price, the price with which they were bought by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so first, Paul begins by making a request to remember. Uh, we see there in verses 15 and 16, a request to remember. And in verse 15, Paul returns to this rhetorical questioning again. And these rhetorical questions are asked, and they should have known the answer. They should have been obvious to them. Paul is wanting them to remember. He says in verse 15, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a prostitute? Never. Right? And in, in asking that question, they should have known. Right? He says, do you not know? It means that very thing. You should have known this. They should have known because Paul had taught it to them that they are members of Christ's body. Right? Members. Uh, that's a word that means the same thing in the Greek as we think of in, in English. Uh, it's limbs. It's the word for limbs. We are limbs of Christ's body. Members of his body. Not just like with a membership card. We are part of who he is, right? We are, as the body of Christ, we are his limbs. He will raise our bodies on that last day. We made this point last week, recall. The body means something. Matter matters. They will be raised. And while that's true, but also we are now currently united to Christ through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. If you belong to Christ, that is true of you. And that's the glorious point that Paul makes in Ephesians 5. As husbands and wives are united to each other, so we as Christ's bride, as his body, are united to him, our heavenly bridegroom. If we could take the time, we could walk through the scriptures and we see this powerful teaching regarding our union, uh, rather the union between man and woman, the significance and the profundity of what that is. And as we look at that and we take all of that into, into uh, account, we see that at its essence, it's that consummation of the marriage that makes you married, right? It's the most profound, intimate relationship physically on earth that could be imagined, that could be had. And it's, this is a picture of that union with Jesus Christ and his church, the profundity of that. And that consummation of the marriage, it makes a bond between two people that is profound, Unites them together. They are one flesh, right? And so you see the problem with what's going on here in Corinthian, in, in, in the church of Corinth, right? You see the problem. We have to see that uh, the problem with loose sexual mores, with those who are married, and especially those who are united already to Christ. And so what Paul says here in verse 15, he says elsewhere. Uh, if you take your Bible and turn forward to chapter 12, uh, we in First Corinthians we see similar something similar. First Corinthians twelve verse twelve says this: For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. Right again, the members are united; they are one body. 
And then I'll read the passage from Ephesians, that glorious passage about Christ and the relationship, the picturing and pointing of what marriage is. Go to Ephesians chapter 5 and listen to uh, verses 23 and following. Ephesians 5, verse 23. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Nourish, cherishes it, what Christ does to the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. One flesh. And then he says, This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Right? You see, this is the example that he gives. Christians are in Christ. Right? We saw this over and over again in Ephesians. They're in Christ. They're with Christ. They're in Him. That's the case. How can they be united to a prostitute in a pagan temple? Right? It's, it's ghastly. Those kind of activities are not meaningless satisfaction of a bodily urge. Do you see the significance of this? The the, the magnitude of what what, what Paul is saying here. Because you know in that culture, in the Corinthian culture in the first century, it was common and it was expected. In the Corinthian, Corinthian culture to have a mistress and to be engaged in sexual acts with prostitutes, both male and female. And these prostitutes were used by the one joining with them, becoming united to the pagan deity that they represented. Right? And you see this awful, horrifying melding of this gross sexual activity with religion, with the false religion of the day. Again, it's ghastly to us when we think about it. And it can never be that the Christian, holy by union of their, uh, with Christ, is physically, bodily united to the unholy. It can never be. Paul emphasizes this in other places as well, this, this uh, impossibility uh, of, a, of a holy and unholy union. Um, again, if we go forward to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he speaks of this at some length. <clears throat> this is that passage that talks about uh, believers are not to be unequally yoked. Right? But the point is made there, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting at verse 14, Paul says this, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Right? What union can there be? You are united to Christ. You, Corinthians, Paul is saying, you are the temple of God. How can you unite yourself to these temple prostitutes and the false deities they rep- represent? 
So like all other aspects of our makeup as human beings, this component, right, our physical intimacy is broken and distorted as a result of the fall. We were created gloriously. If God calls us to marriage, to experience and enjoy marriage and the intimacy that comes along with that. And these things that we see here, the problem with this is borne out even in secular science. I was reading an article recently, um, uh, psychology was in the secular realm, and they're even admitting evidence uh, for what goes on here. Even they see this. I was reading it and it was talking about the dangers and the damages that come from the use of pornography. Um, It talks about what goes on physically, chemically in the brain, Um, and throughout the whole body when engaging in this activity. These are things going on in the mind, in the body, Uh, the transmission of chemicals and neurons and connections in the brain that grow powerful bonding and connection and sense of affection and longing towards those with which uh, are being engaged in this thing. See, the intimacy is not merely a surface-level physical action, uh, is the point. These connections and this bonding that they have discovered and seen and shown scientifically, they're only appropriate in the context of marriage for a spouse because they're so powerful. And when used outside of the context of marriage, they are destructive because that's not what they were intended for. These connections, they're only appropriate, right? They're not saying that about the context of the marriage, but we know that that's true. That's what God's word says. And this isn't news for us, right? It's not merely chemicals in the brain. There's a spiritual component to what's going on. And we know what we read in Ephesians, how grotesque it is, the distortion of what this picture is supposed to be, Christ and his church. And so these pagan temple prostitutes, there is idolatry connected with all of this. Union with pagan deities through sexual relations. Paul is horrified, as we should be horrified. It is fornication. It is adultery. But it's worse than that because it's it's this horrible and vile reality to replace what God has established. Relations, union in marriage between one man and one woman to replace that with union with false gods via these temple prostitutes. You know, it's interesting. We look at God's word and we see this idolatry, adultery connection. And we see it's often in the Old Testament, uh, particularly in the prophets calling out Israel for their idolatry. And they call to Israel to stop playing the harlot is the phrase uh, in the older version. Stop playing the harlot. And they connect this idolatry to adultery. Uh, Indeed, when we think of um, the birth, as it were, of of the nation of Israel, the incident of the golden calf following uh, the exodus in Mount Sinai and giving of the Ten Commandments. It indeed is a picture of Israel committing adultery on her wedding night. It's barely begun, and they are cheating on the Lord. We see this in other places as well. Uh, Exodus 34, 15, um, we see this kind of language being used where it says there, Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods, right? play the harlot is the older uh, uh, phrase, and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of this sacrifice. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. 
Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. And they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. The warning of what they will do, indeed what they had already done. And then in Judges, we see the cycle in the Judges. And we read this in Judges 2.17. It said, yet they did not listen to their judges. For they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. Psalm 106.39. Thus they became unclean by their acts. And they played the harlot in their deeds. Right, so they're relating what this is, this awful offense. Right, why this language in this comparison? It's because it's gross and vile and wicked to cheat on the Lord. To break faithfulness with, faithfulness with Him to another. To a lying, false, pretend, evil God. And this is what was going on in Corinth. And Paul is aghast and he's telling them they should have known. And the consequences, you know, of these things are awful and they are destructive across all levels. Spiritually, they are awful and destructive. Emotionally, ethically, even theologically, there are destructive consequences to these actions. And then Paul goes on to verse 16 of our passage. He says, Or do you not know... He who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her, one body with her. For it is written, and he quotes Genesis, the two shall become one flesh. Right? Again, it's another rhetorical question. They know the answer. Paul has already instructed them in these things. And it's a very old truth. Right? The sexual relation is about one man and one woman becoming one flesh. Again, Genesis 2. And so the Corinthians must see that this business with the temple prostitutes, for which Paul is calling them out, was far more significant spiritually, emotionally, ethically, than merely a base physical action. It involved becoming one with a person that's not sanctioned by God, and who represents and stands for a pagan deity who is in direct opposition to the only true God, the true and the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, you know, we think of these things and we read of these uh, horrifying things that were going on in the first century. And most of us probably sense a certain degree of distance from that, right? People today are not like the Corinthians who are engaging in sexual practices with temple prostitutes to bind themselves and have favor with the deities they represent, right? Most people... That's not going on, by and large, in Fort Wayne, I don't think. But in many, in a way, many in our culture are like them. Right? Many are like them. You know, again, I mentioned pornography. Pornographic use, it's one of the biggest money-making enterprises today. It is pervasive. I won't read the statistics to you, but they are awful and they are shocking. And they involve people from all demographics, across all ages and professions. And all of it is fostered and encouraged by our culture. It's yet another bondage of the so-called sexual revolution of decades ago, which is not freedom, it's bondage. As, as Paul said in Romans, thinking themselves wise, they became fools. We are reaping the whirlwind of all of that. The reality is there is no safety outside of God's design and desire. There is no real comfort outside of God's design and His desire. There is no real satisfaction, no real joy 
outside of God's design and his desire for his people. There is only ultimately danger and destruction and suffering outside of God's design. Sexual sins, like all addictions, like all sins, do not satisfy. They do not deliver. They cannot deliver. It has been said that man has a God-shaped hole in his heart that can only be filled by God. All of these other sins, all of these other aberrations will not do. They will not fill that hole. They will not satisfy. At the time it's done, we may think that these sins are satisfying or comforting or giving. But addictions, sexual sins and other sins, they are what has been called a banquet in the graveyard. Right, A banquet in the graveyard. It's an imagery that comes from the book of Proverbs. Right, Grasp that for a minute. These sins, these addictions are like a banquet in the grave. They're like indulging in a banquet, in a grand feast, in the midst of the dead, in the midst of a graveyard. There is death all around everywhere. And we are seeking to be satisfied in the middle of that death. death. Proverbs 9, from which this imagery comes, says this. And you'll see the connection. It says, The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house and she takes her seat on the high places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. And then verse 18 says this, but he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. It's a banquet in a graveyard. And brothers and sisters, because the world says something is okay to do something, doesn't make it okay. Doesn't make it okay. Let God be true, though every man a liar. In our fallen nature, we love to hear alleged good news about our bad habits. And that's what the culture does all the time. It tells us good news about our bad habits. But it's not true. It doesn't make them good because of the the quantity or the volume or the pervasiveness of the idea. Hear God's word regarding this, dear Christian. Hear it. Believe it. What did the Lord say? Be holy because I am holy. Hebrews 12, strive for holiness. What is God's will for your life? 1 Thessalonians, your holiness, your sanctification. God has cleansed us. If you belong to him, he has cleansed you. He has removed that inky black stain of sin from your life. We are united to him. We are not to walk back into the mud and defile ourselves again. We are free not to do so. You are cleansed. Walk in your cleanness. And to imbibe in this behavior renders serious and grave consequences across the spectrum of your whole person. Spiritually, emotionally, and physically. For you, dear Christian, for us who belong to Christ, there is no casual sex. There is no victimless deviancy that we engage in. It's not a joke. It's not something that's neutral. It's not something that just because the culture says it's okay that it is. It is not, brothers and sisters. For you, dear Christian, it is not Okay, and you are united to Christ, right? And the consequences of the deviancy are far too costly. 
It is lying behavior. So flee to Christ, dear Christian. Flee to Christ for forgiveness again and again, and flee to him to praise him. So Paul there in those verses issues a request to remember. Remember these things. And then secondly, in verses 17 and 18, he shows them the radical results of this, the radical results. He shows them the implications, right? And indeed, the results are radical. Uh, Verse 17, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. That's radical. That's radical. How does Paul tell us in Ephesians again that the Christians are united to Christ, right? We just read it a moment ago. He said that as the husband is to wife, they become one flesh. One flesh. And in that way, we are one spirit with Christ by virtue of our union with him through faith in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. These aren't make-believe ethereal things that don't really have consequence. This is true of you. You belong to Jesus Christ. This is true of you. One flesh, one spirit with Christ by virtue of that union. And that being the case, right, the logic goes. How can the believer substitute, again, an inappropriate, unsanctioned relationship? Temple prostitute, outside of marriage, non-spouse, homosexuality, pornography, any of it. How can they substitute that and substitute that and put that in the place of that which God has sanctioned? Right? Biblical marriage. They are, the Corinthians, and we are, we belong to him, one spirit with Jesus. Therefore, these things cannot be. And that pagan world did the same thing that our pagan world tries to do. And that is to violate and to twist the created order of things to justify their actions. Ours like theirs in order to justify what they do. They have to turn what is unnatural into natural. They have to make wrong right. They have to turn what is abnormal into normal. That's why it's important to always be corrected and always be straightened and always be influenced by the word of God. Always and more and more and again and more. And the question has to be asked, are we more influenced by the world or by the word? Are you more influenced by the world or by the word of God? If you're more influenced by the world, you must be aware of this, dear Christian, and plead for faith and plead for the stamina and get into the Word of God and get the Word of God into you. Again, I'll quote what I said a number of weeks ago, that phrase, you must be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Get into the Word. We must, brothers and sisters, we must develop reflexes and instincts and a natural ability to see all of life, including these sexual issues that are current in our culture and that we read about in Corinthians, we must see all of life in light of our union with Jesus Christ. Dwell on that, brothers and sisters. Meditate upon that. Reflect upon that for your health, to correct you, to protect you, for your life. And then go, God, the Holy Spirit through the scripture continues now and he tells us, he goes on with the radical results of our being united, our being in union in verse 18. And he says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. 
And notice something here. This is very important. Here's a command, and it's the punch of the passage. Right? It's the punch of what he's saying here. There are two salient, positive commands given in our text this morning. There's the last phrase in verse 20, glorify God in your body. And then there's the command here uh, at the beginning of um, verse 18. And it says what? It says, flee sexual immorality. Flee. Flee. Run away from it. And it's crucial that we understand this, what it is not saying. God's word does not say resist sexual immorality. That's not what he says. It says to flee from it. Run away from it. Right? Yes, James says, I believe in chapter 4, resist the devil and he will flee from you. But here in this text this morning, we're told regarding sexual immorality to flee from it. Flee from it. And those who are astute, right, and who are thinking whole biblically, right, you, you, may, you may hear in this the echo, uh, the, an occasion in history in Scripture that reflects this command, flee sexual immorality. Right, what is it? It's that account in Genesis 39, right, with Joseph. Remember in his encounter with Potiphar's wife. What does Joseph do? You stand there in his strength and, and, and try to resist? No, he flees. He gets out of there. He flees the situation. Because who is the person most likely to fall in, in, into sexual immorality, into sexual sin? It's the person who tries to stay and resist that temptation. Paul says, don't try to resist it. Flee from it. Flee. There's something especially, Paul is saying here, problematic with sins of a sexual nature. Paul is expressing here that these kinds of sins carry with them a certain sense of guilt and shame that other sins don't even begin to approximate because of all that they are and the profundity of what this, all this means and how things are supposed to work and how being outside of that supposed, uh, of that design, uh, the destruction that comes from them. Right? These kind of sins are against our own bodies, it says, while others are outside the body. And some have said, if you study this passage and uh, the commentators, uh, that that phrase, outside the body, some think that that may have been another slogan, right, um, that the Corinthians were using, uh, a slogan that that libertine party in Corinth were using to try and justify the practice. It's outside the body. The stomach for the food, the food for stomach, God's going to destroy it anyway. The body doesn't matter. It's the soul that counts. And in the same way, they would say, this is outside the body. It doesn't matter. But it can never be. And Paul hammers this home. This can never be. There is a God-ordained expression of sexuality. His way is not intended to suppress or to punish or to be a dud or a killjoy. His way is designed to protect and to celebrate and to model and point towards, to emulate the physical expression using that most intimate, close, profound relation humanly possible. The relationship Christ and his church. Will we be conditioned by God's word in the worldview of the Bible or will we be conditioned by the the world? And then Paul moves on to the glorious and wonderful bottom line, right? The wonderful bottom line, the foundation of it all, right? We've seen Paul in this passage point out the wrong grounding that they had He's given a request to remember. He's shown the radical results of these things. And then finally, 
He gives the redemption price, right, in verses 19 and 20. The redemption price. And again, he asks them questions about something the Corinthians have already been taught. Verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Right, again, do you not know? This is a rhetorical question indicating they should have known the answer. Right? In other words, you know that this is the case, right? That's what he's saying. As Christians, they are united to the risen Christ through faith, and they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And for you too, dear Christian, for you too, if you have placed your trust in Jesus for all of your life, if you have come to him, yes, with all of your brokenness and your twisted dirtiness, if you've come to him and you are his and he is yours, you too, Christian, are united to the risen Christ through faith. And you too are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Because God's Spirit dwells in us, we are together the temple of God. And therefore what? We are Christ's. We are not our own. He has purchased us with his own blood. We are no longer our own. We belong to him. The price we were bought with was the price of the shed blood of our Savior. And then notice once again, right? wonderfully, right? notice again, even in this one verse, verse 20, notice again this glorious and wonderful pattern. Right? You'll see it again and again if you have eyes that are looking for this. Right? Verse 20, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your bodies. Right? Do you see it? What comes first there? That which identifies who you are. The indicative. You were bought with a price. And then comes the imperative, the command. So glorify God in your bodies. Right? He said, see who you are. Not your own. Bought with a price. Now be who you are. Glorify God in your body. And so at this point, <clears throat> maybe you're at the, the same time agreeing with God's word here, uh, understanding what he's saying, but maybe you're also feeling the pinch of shame and guilt and true sorrow for your sins. The truth is that the Corinthians are not alone in the sins that they struggled with and that they struggled against. We too wrestle and fight and lament over these things. And you might think, I'm not supposed to do these things. I know that. But I have. But I have. Is there only damage and shame and dirtiness and destruction left for me? It hurts. I know it does. I know it hurts. But for you, dear Christian, for you and for me, there is hope. There is hope. There is hope and relief and rescue and cleanliness and life for you. And that is only found in the arms of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. That one who gave his life for his people. That one who bought his people with the price of his own blood. Right? Remember that this passage we're looking at, and all these things that Paul is saying, they flow from and out of that passage that was just before it. And what did he say there? Starting at verse 9 of chapter 6, right? Do you remember he said, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. 
neither the sexual immorality, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the, the, by the Spirit of our God. Right? He says of them in the past tense, such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Dear Christian, your sin is not greater than your Savior. You are not too dirty for your Redeemer. God forgives all of your sins, every kind, even sexual sins. And if you, dear Christian, brother and sister, if you are His, it's true of you. You have been washed. You have been sanctified. You've been justified. And you will be glorified. Do you see that? Do you see what's going on there? And it is true of you that Christ has and will prepare us, His bride, again, in what way? We are the bride of Christ. How will he prepare and present us? We read it in Ephesians. Listen again closely. How he describes you, dear Christian, dear bride of Christ. Does Christ love the church and gave himself up for her? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water of the word, so that he might present the church to himself, how? In splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is what the Lord has done for us, brothers and sisters. This is how he will present us to himself. It is Christ's flawless, impeccable righteousness with which we are clothed. His perfect righteousness upon you. Let us remember what we have learned from this passage. Dear Christian, we were bought with a price. We are not our own. The Lord will save, raise up even our bodies. Our bodies are not the prison house of the soul. They will be raised and reunited with our spirits on the last day. Again, listen to the testimony regarding this of God's word. And glory and revel in this and praise God and rejoice. Isaiah 26, 19 says, Your dead shall live. Their bodies will rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to its dead. And then Romans 8.22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as what? As we wait Eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, of our bodies. And then Philippians 3. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. How? By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The glorious truths from God's word. May we remember this glorious truth, brothers and sisters. This truth that you were bought, and even in your bodies, they will be saved, they will be redeemed. And as you do so, may it give you strength 
and hope. And with the help of the Spirit, may it grow you, grow your faith to be strong and pure in your practice as you submit and surrender to the Spirit's work in your life. And because this is true, you have been freed from the bondage that your sins that once plagued and imprisoned you. You are freed from those things. And may you go, dear believer, may you go back from here into the world with renewed hope and with renewed assurance that you are clean, that he has purchased you, and that that means something, not just spiritually, but in your body. It means something, dear Christian. It is all important. How glorious our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. How glorious. And may you go with a renewed desire to glorify God in that, in your bodies, knowing that those bodies have been redeemed by Christ and that those bodies indeed will be raised on the last day. Amen. Let's pray together.